0: guys? Happy huh? happy July. Uh, it sure feels like July. <laughs> Agree? It feels like August. Yeah. Um, the front row is surprisingly empty today. Um, you heard about the, the uh, lady that walked into church. It was the first Sunday in this church, and she walked up to the front row like this, and she went to sit down, and somebody sitting a few rows back came up to her and said, good morning, ma'am. How are you doing? And she said, hi, I'm doing good. He said, yeah, I just want to make a little recommendation. He said, you might want to sit a few rows back. The preacher's really boring. And she said, do you know who I am? And he said, no. And she said, I'm the preacher's mother. He said, do you know who I am? She said, no. He said, good. (laughs) Oh, man, but we have an empty front row. I don't know what that says. But uh, my mom is not here, so you don't have to worry about saying anything. (laughs) Anyway, it's great to see you guys. And uh, I just, I am just so thankful for you all. And I'm so excited about what God is doing among us. Uh, We had our summer staff retreat yesterday, and it was just such a great day, such an exciting day of anticipation and expectancy of vision and plans. And I'm just really excited about where God is moving this church. If it's your first time here today, we welcome you. We thank you for coming. Uh, We are just a very unique. Family of faith here in this area. We, God planted this church about five, six years ago in a living room over on Mud Island. And God has just blessed and grown this church and grown this church and grown this church. Uh, Today, what you see is just a small representative of really who we are. We're all over this community and we meet on Sundays, we meet in homes during the week, and we love being together. We love worshiping God together, growing in God together. We love serving our community and doing life in this area together. And so, We invite you back anytime if this is your first Sunday, but we walk through books of the Bible here, and we're in the middle of the study of the gospel of Luke, and so we're going to pick up today exactly where we left off last week, which was at the end of 13, Luke chapter 13, going into the beginning of Luke chapter 14. We've got a lot to do today uh, in terms of just covering Luke chapter 14, and I'm excited to dive into the word together. I'm so excited to dive into the word together today, and so um, Luke chapter 14. Are you ready? Yes. A little bit more exciting. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> yes. I should probably open my Bible too. That would be helpful, wouldn't it? Luke chapter 14. Everybody there? Okay. I'm reading out at ESV. And it is on the screens if you do not have your Bible. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 1. And, and what I'm going to do today, I just want to tell you, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to teach as we read, okay? So, I'm not going to read the entire chapter to you and then go back and teach. We're just going to talk as we go, all right? On Sabbath, one Sabbath, not on Sabbath, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So... We see that it's a Sabbath day. Now, just, we're just continuing the narrative that we've been continuing, okay? We just got through. Jesus has been standing on the hill lamenting over Jerusalem, the lost city, desiring that all come to Him in repentance and in faith, which is the same desire He has for you. And now we come to a Sabbath day, and Jesus is invited by one of the Pharisees, one of the religious rulers, to eat. Now, if you've noticed, maybe you've noticed, maybe you haven't, Jesus really doesn't turn down invitations to eat, much like your pastor. Um, I love it when you invite me to eat, and Jesus loved it too. And and the cool thing is, in that culture, eating was such a sign of oneness. It's not like today, where you just kind of sit down with whoever. To sit and share a meal with somebody in that culture was to say you're opening up yourself to them. You're sharing. It's more than just a one time thing. It's a it's a very intimate experience. It's a, it's a symbol of oneness, oneness of relationship, and it's kind of interesting that Jesus really doesn't ever turn down invitations to come in because that symbol of oneness is the kind of relationship that he wants with all of us. He's, I mean, he's, you think about Zacchaeus, you know, inviting him in, and he's, fair, he's wanting to be one with you and with me. And that's the picture you see even in Revelation. Remember he says, he stands at the doors and knocks. And anybody comes in, he will come in and, what, dine with them. It's that picture of being in oneness of relationship with God. So we see that Jesus is going into the Pharisees' house to have some dinner. But, the Pharisees really didn't have the same intent that Jesus had going. And what's it say there in verse 1? We know that because it says they were, does it say? Watching him carefully. They were looking at Jesus to see if they could find some flaw in this man. And we know about the Sabbath, even to this day, with Jewish people and the Jewish um, traditions and rules, there are so many rules on the Sabbath. You cannot work on the Sabbath To the point that if you were going to have a hot meal on the Sabbath, you had to find a way to heat it the day before because you couldn't actually heat anything on the Sabbath day. And to this day, you know, a lot of Jewish people will take their, like if they're going to, they can't make coffee on Sundays, but they can put boiling water on on Saturday night, leave it boiling all day, and then they use instant coffee on Sunday because that's not working because they had boiled the water on the day before the Sabbath. There's all these traditions and all these rules that go along with the Sabbath. They're watching Jesus carefully. And in verse 2, we say this. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, here comes a man on the Sabbath day who has a serious disease. It's a disease where fluid builds up under the skin. And it's a pretty serious disease. It's, the word dropsy is just made of a Greek word meaning water and face you've got a serious problem. And you know about Jesus that He has a heart for people. He has a heart to heal people. And He has a heart for you. Your problems are not distant from God. Jesus wants to heal your hurts and to heal your problems. And He wants to heal this man. And so they're looking at Jesus going, "Uh uh-huh, we can bring a man in with dropsy. His heart's going to want to heal him, but it's the Sabbath day so we can catch him in his rules. Because that would be work, or so they thought. And the interesting thing is, look at Verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. Responded to what? They hadn't said anything. Responded to what their intent was in bringing in this man. And he asked a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? You're looking at the guy that I'm looking at. It's a guy who has needs. You brought him in here. He's standing before you. You tell me, is it lawful for me to respond in compassion to this man, to heal his hurts or not. Verse 4. But they remained silent. And then he took him and he healed them. Praise Jesus. Amen. God is able to do anything. Did you know that? God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything that you ask or imagine. God is able. What do you feel like God can't handle right now in your life? He can. He can. Jesus healed the guy and then he sent him away. And then he turns around to the Pharisees in verse 5 and he said to them, Which of you, having an ox, excuse me, having a son or an ox, who has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? In verse 6 it says that they could not reply to these things. Jesus here as he does throughout the Scriptures. And we're not going to spend much time on this, but he's pointing out the self-centeredness and the pride of the Pharisees. And so often he's pointing out the pride and the self-centeredness in you and me. You see, the question he asked was, Look, if that was your ox, if you had an animal that fell into a ditch on the Sabbath day, and that animal was hurting. There were open wells all over the place. They had traditions and rules that said they could go get that animal out if it was hurting. Or even if he had a son that was hurting, that was in danger, would you not help him in his time of need? Of course they would. But this man, they didn't view with the same compassion that they would view their son or even their animal. You see, there's a tendency to be so self-centered, to be so self-absorbed that you actually won't do the things for others that you know you would do for yourself. And Jesus is calling us to a radical change within, inside-out kind of change such that our heart becomes His heart such that we see people as He sees people. We identify with others as we identify with ourselves. The things that you would do for an animal, surely you can do for another person. Amen? Listen. Americans spend, I think it's $45 billion on pets every year. $45 billion. And it's amazing to me that we can't care for orphans. We can't care for widows. We can't send more money to the herding in other parts of the world. If we can do it for animals, we can do it for people, folks. Amen? But even if you don't have an animal, you can do things for others that you can do for yourself. Jesus wants to change you, to give you His heart of compassion. This is who He is. And he's pointing out their pride. And then he goes on, verse 7. Pointing out their pride and self-centeredness, he begins to tell a parable. and Verse 7 says this, Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Now you've got to picture the scene. You've got little tables. In a big room. You take a room like this and you set up little tables all over the place. There's three people usually per table. There's two side seats and one head seat. They sit on the floor. They sit on pillows. Two side seats, one head seat. And what Jesus is going into the room and he's looking at a group of men who are trying to jostle themselves and juxtapose themselves in a way that they can get the best seats. They want to get the head seats and they want to get the seats in the front Who's ever been a little kid before? Okay, great, all of you. 100% response, that's awesome. Um, I remember as a, a little kid with my sister, we had two barstools in our kitchen, and one of them, I don't even know why, but we decided that that was the best barstool. And so I would like wake up in the morning and be like, "Called it, <laughs> I want that barstool. And we just had this back and forth fight, and you know, you get in a car and nobody wants to sit in the middle seat, you know what I'm talking about? And so everybody's calling and trying to jostle and juxtapose themselves so that they have the best seat. And, you, you know, we do this. We do this when we go to parties. You get together with your friends, and people want to shuffle themselves to the best seat so they can have the best view and have the maximum conversation. And they're sitting by the people that they enjoy the most. And Jesus is looking at this and going, What? Do you, do you see what you're doing? In verse 8, look at it. So he says this, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and and say, "Give your place to this person." And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So Jesus is saying when you get invited when you're in situations like that, don't position yourself to be in the best place. Don't try to work and fight and Jostle around so that you take the seat of honor. You put yourself in the best place. Because if you do that, humiliation is coming for you. Because you're assuming that's where you belong. But it's the master of the house that determines where you belong. And if you put yourself in the best place, he's going to lower you to the lowest place. And oh, the shame. Oh, the humiliation. Y'all see what's going on? Don't do that. But verse 10, he says, But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is calling us, again, inside out, He's calling us to a lifestyle of humility. Where, like Philippians 2 says, you're always considering others as more important than yourself. Allowing God to be the one who decides who's exalted and who's humbled. Don't fight for control. Don't fight to try to work your way up. Listen, some of you guys live and work in very competitive environments. And it's hard not to try to constantly fight to make yourself look better than others. But Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't try to take control. Don't try to look for self-esteem and look for approval in the ways that you can handle it. Rather, submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to others and let God be the one who decides your final place. And the promise is that he who humbles himself, he who lives in humility, realizing that you're not better than anybody else, you don't deserve a higher seat than anybody else, you're not worthy of that. The one who lives in that place, God will. Exalt, and it's not a a self-centered humility you know because i know good and well i've done it before you can sit in a low place on the table and feel really good about the fact that you're so humble and and sit there the whole meal making sure that everybody else knows that you chose the the low place or you can choose the the low place knowing that oh i'm going to manipulate god and i'm going to choose the low place so that at the end i'll get the best honor see that's not humility because it's still self-centered Humility is forgetfulness of self. It's living in a way that you truly, in your heart of hearts, God's changed you such that others are as important as you, such that you know your place in God's kingdom. And it's not the highest place. It's the lowest. But God says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Praise God. Amen? And Jesus continues. Look at verse 12. He goes into another parable. And because they're at dinner, every parable relates to eating. Isn't this awesome? And he says, he said also to the man who had invited him. So it's not just about attending, it's about how you host. This self-centeredness can come through when you're invited and it can come through when you're hosting. Look, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed because you—excuse me—because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He's saying, look, when you're inviting, don't, don't extend generosity in self-centered ways. Don't give just so somebody can give back to you. Don't offer and extend an invitation just because those people are very enjoyable or those people have favors that they can turn around and give back to you. That's not true generosity. When you're giving so that you in the end receive, that's not actually giving. Give in such a way that you're truly desiring to bless, desiring to give in such a way that you're not going to get anything back. You just want to bless those who come into your place. And look, there's nothing wrong with having friends and family over. But if that's all you have over, if that's all if all of your life exists around your little circles of people who you like, we're not living intentionally. We're not living missionally. We're not living in a way that desires to bless those who have no other means of blessing than somebody reaching out and extending charity and extending grace. And this is how God has blessed us. You all understand that, right? This is how Jesus has blessed us. You were pitiful, you were poor, you were naked. And God came to you and invited you in. No return on that man. You haven't haven't done anything else for God other than what he could have already done. He invited you because he wanted to bless you. And in the same way, you bless others. Everybody tracking? Let's continue. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. This is a reference most directly to the marriage shepherd of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19. Blessed is the one who will sit at the table of God forever because at that table it's not going to matter who's educated and who's poor, who's rich and who's whatever. All of those labels go away. Everyone is equal. Everyone is important. And that feast, think about an internal perspective as you live your life. That feast should be the kind of feast that we're having here on earth. This church should look like a place where people come in and go, what is this hodgepodge group of people? (laughs) There's nothing that unites us other than the unity we find in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? That's Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. If that is the marriage feast of the Lamb, that should be the feast that we're seeing today where all are equal, all are important. It's pretty cool. Look on verse 16. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at a time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and and see it. Uh, Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Uh, please have me excused. And another said, Well, I've married a wife, Tyler, this weekend, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my banquet. Jesus continues with another story of a supper. And this supper is most assuredly the marriage supper of the Lamb, that supper which represents our eternal communion with God himself. And the master of this supper is God himself. And the master has extended invitations to all to come in. And you see sadly in this parable Jesus is showing us what happens in so many people's lives. As the invitation goes out there's an awareness that God desires a relationship with you. There's awareness that you aren't the center of your life. You're not the center of this world. That your control in the end is not what it's all about. There's a invitation that goes out to submit and to to gladly find your joy and satisfaction in God, not self. But so often that invitation is met with the response of excuses. A man consumed with commerce such that he bought land that he had not even seen, so he's got to go check it out, just consumed with world. The guy who's bought the oxen, and he's got to go play with his new toys now. Let me tell you, new toys... There could be a cycle of new toys in life that is detrimental to the soul because there's a fascination with new stuff that you can cling to. It's always something new and you're always just fascinated by it. Such that you miss out on the things of God because of the things that you're involved with. And then you see a third excuse that this guy is getting married, the Tyler. But Tyler, you're not like this guy, I pray. And saying, you know what? I, I just can't seem to prioritize what comes first. Is it family or is it you, God, and, and there's this, I'm sorry, I can't come. And excuses are always made. They're always derived. Y'all know that, right? At the, at the back of an excuse, if you take it to its end, do you know what you find? A lack of desire. And because you don't desire something, you excuse your way out of it. The real issue is the fact that you really don't want to go. Think about the stuff that you say no to, and you can skew your way out of. I do this sometimes. Not with any of you, of course. But, you know, it's, e- it's easy to, to not express what's really going on in your heart. I really just don't want to go to that thing. And so you, 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 you package it. Oh, well, you know, I have this, or I have that, and I really don't have time because of this. But let me tell you, you make time for the things you want to do. Amen. At the back of the excuse is a no desire. And this is what Jesus is pointing out. He's saying, these folks making excuses, these folks I'm inviting to follow, they don't have the desire to follow me. I see through excuses. Jesus sees through excuses. You can't fool God. And we can't fool God. Y'all know that, right? As you make excuses about faith, being faithful to God and doing the things that He wants, you can't fool Him. God knows your heart. But the great thing is he's inviting you in. Just say yes. Say yes always to God. Amen? Say yes to God. You don't need to make excuses. But these did, and because of that, listen, they're the ones that missed out, not Jesus. I mean, Jesus wanted them to come in, but they were the ones that missed out because the invitation still went out. And the invitation went out to those who were ready to receive it and to be invited into the supper. It was the crippled, it was the lame, it was the blind, it was the poor. They came in. And those that were so consumed and so saturated with this world who thought they had it all together, at the end they missed it all. And the prophetic call of the gospel was fulfilled where Jesus says, I've come for the poor, I've come for the hurting, I've come for the blind. And listen, he's come for everybody who's willing to say, I'm a mess and I know you love me and I turn back to you. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? So this is, he's he's teaching, he's teaching all of this. He's just sitting over dinner and imagine, imagine you being at that table and listening to Jesus. He's saying the same thing today. He who has ears, let him hear. Listen to what God is saying to you. He's wanting to do something inside your heart that is radical. Radical. Our understanding of life needs to be totally changed by the Spirit of God as we trust Jesus. Now look at verse 25. We're going to finish this out. Jesus apparently gets up from dinner. And it says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, Now imagine this. Jesus gets up from dinner. He walks out of the Pharisee's house and there are crowds around him. And we know that there are crowds that accompany Jesus. Many of them are disciples, truly committed to Him. But there are others who are just trying to figure it out. They're just seeking. And we welcome those kind of people here at this church. There are others who come because somebody else has invited Him. There are others who come very self-centered, just wanting something from Jesus to make something better. And not really for who He is. But He turns to the crowds. And He's just told the story about what it looks like to truly come into the banquet and those who have made excuses to stay out. And His heart... Look, Jesus is never about... Crowds. He's about followers. He's not about masses. He's about disciples. And when I look out at this crowd, I don't care how many people are here on any average Sunday. What I care about is, are you walking with the Lord? Are you being faithful to the Lord? Are you, are you taking time every day to worship Him and to sit in His presence? It doesn't matter if you're here on Sundays, although I'm so glad you're here. But when Jesus looks at you, He doesn't look at your church attendance. He doesn't look at the masses. He sees your heart and He wants to know, are you in or are you out? Are you walking with me or are you not? And He wants you to walk with Him in life. Y'all see that, right? And so He says this in verse 26. And let me tell you, let me just say this. Jesus gives the terms of what it looks like to follow Him. You don't set the terms. We live in a world today that sets all kinds of terms on our standards about what it looks like to follow Jesus. But you don't get God on your terms. You get God on His terms. Y'all see that? We need to seek, what does God want from me? I know who He is and I know His grace and His love, but what does He want from me? And we follow Him according to His terms. Not the ones that we've made up. Because in the end, yours just go away. You need to know his standards. Agree? And these are hard, but these are necessary for us to hear. He says in verse 26, there's a fly in my ear and it's awesome. (laughs) If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and, and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when... When he has laid the foundation and he is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and he was not able to finish it. Or Verse 31, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a far great way off. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, I heard it said once, Jesus is not a used car salesman. Now, used car salesmen have a pretty bad rap, right? Sell me a lemon, right? You know, they want to package things in a way that you're just going to buy it without knowing what you're really getting into. That's not Jesus. Never. Never. You don't want you to just make false decisions for him based on something you think rather than knowing what, who he is and what it looks like to lay down your life for him. That's not who he is. He's not a used car salesman. He wants you to know exactly what following him looks like. And there's three simple things that are pointed out here in this text, and I'm going to put them on the screen real quick. First, he requires supreme love. Jesus is, and, and by the way, these are just adapted This is from David Platt, my friend, who wrote the book Radical. Have you ever read the book Radical? It's a great book about what it looks like to follow Jesus completely. I recommend it to anybody, and David's a great guy. These are just adapted from him, all right? This is nothing new. It's just laying out plain what the text is saying. Jesus requires a supreme love. Now, some people read this text and say, Oh, Jesus is advocating me to hate my mama, and therefore he's breaking the Ten Commandments because it says, Honor your father and mother. Hate my brother, hate my sister. Well, some of you want to, but no, he's not saying that. He's not saying that you should actually hate them because he calls us to radical love. We have to understand in the context of this day, the word hate is the only word that we can really substitute here that makes sense because it's a comparative word. In comparison with your family, the love, of Je- the love you have for Jesus should be supreme. It should look like you hate your family in comparison to how much you love Jesus. Y'all see that? It's like, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? It's not that God hates Esau. No, he doesn't hate Esau. But in comparison, look at, look at their lives. Look at the course. You see? In comparison with family, Jesus' love, my love for him is supreme. He is to have first place above everything. That's why he says in Matthew 22... You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your mind and with all of your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The love that you have for God should be an all-consuming, supreme love in your life. And in comparison with the love you have for anything else, think about in your mind, who are the people that are closest to you that you would say, I love you the most? Mine's right here on the second row today. My wife. I love Michelle to death. I mean, I, I can't think of anything that I wouldn't do for Michelle. She's the love of my life. Love you, baby. You look really <laughs> cute today, too. I just love everything about her. Think about the person you love so much. How your heart oozes when you're around them. Jesus is saying, in comparison to that, that love should look like nothing in comparison to how much you love Jesus. If you sit around thinking about Michelle Barrett, then you better sit around thinking about me. If you sit around thinking, how am I going to just make Michelle delighted today, you better be sitting around thinking about how do I want to delight my Savior. If you look at Michelle and go, oh my word, she's cute. She's cute then I need to be looking at my Savior going, isn't He wonderful? In comparison to my love for Michelle, Jesus' love is supreme. It's even greater. Amen? This is what Jesus calls us to. It's not just a, okay, I'll get baptized, make sure this eternity thing is all wrapped up. Okay, I'll go to church twice a year because it's my duty. It's not a begrudging following. No. No. We know from Scripture that people who have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, the, when the Holy Spirit is in you, the definition of new birth is satisfaction, superior satisfaction in Jesus, amazement with who He is, worship and wonder and awe, excitement about our Savior. That's what God does in you in the Spirit. That's, what, that's the sign of new birth. It's not the checking of a card or the baptism. It's a heart that is in love with your Savior. Amen? He calls you to supreme love. And secondly, he calls you to exclusive loyalty. Exclusive loyalty. What he's saying is he gives this example of these people who go out and start a tower and they don't finish it. And somebody else who goes out and begins a war and he doesn't have what it takes to actually win the war. How many of you have started something and you didn't finish it? New Year's resolution? Let me just get a uh-huh, uh-huh. I saw a commercial once. Uh, this guy went into the tattoo parlor. I don't even know why I remember this. He went into the tattoo parlor, and he's looking at his wife. He's like, I'll do anything for you, baby. I'll do anything. And he's sitting there under the knife, whatever they use to give tattoos. And uh, is it a knife? That sounds like surgery. It's not a knife. It's a pen or something. But he's sitting there, and he's getting this heart thing. And in the middle of it, he said, he's saying, I love you, Donna. I love you, Donna. And uh, he said, how much is this going to be again? He looks at the tattoo guy. He said, $66, and his face just dropped. He said, I only have 44, and they, like, leave. It shows them leaving the tattoo shop, and, like, she's so mad at him, and it zooms into his arm, and it says, I love Don, because he didn't finish it. (laughs) It was hilarious, and then it's, like, Visa accepted everywhere. So, um, but, you know, it looks kind of stupid when you start something, and you can't finish it, right? You start a project, and you don't have what it takes to get it done. You see buildings all over the city that are started, and you ride by, and you think, how sad, they can't finish that. Jesus is calling you to exclusive loyalty such that when you start following Him, you know before you start that you're committed to Him until the end. You're committed to Jesus until the end. You know before you start. Look, Jesus is saying, don't get into this blind. You should think about whether or not you can follow me before you can start following. This is why we at Allen Community Church don't just push some religious hodgepodge at you every week. We're not trying to coerce you into anything. We're trying to help you think logically through the power of the Spirit of God whether or not you're truly able to follow Jesus and want to. When you make that decision, we take it very seriously. We don't just want emotional reactions. We want you to truly commit to give Jesus your life. Y'all see what I'm saying? This is a serious thing. Jesus wants you to be able to follow Him exclusively. He wants your loyalty to be such that you're with Him until the very end. Think about the things that could come at you in life. You don't know what they're going to be, do you? You don't know if tomorrow your apartment catches fire like one of my f- friends had a friend did this past week. You don't know if you'll have a wreck like I did this past week. That was exciting. You don't know if next week, uh, we watched if Michelle and I were watching this video last night about this 30-year-old guy who got cancer. I don't know if that's going to be me in a year from now. I don't know. I don't know what might come in this life, but I do know that I've given Jesus my life. And he's worthy of following, and he is good, and he is worthy no matter what may come. And I've considered the cost, I've considered the end, and I am with him until the end. I want to be found a good and faithful servant. I want to be found doing the things that God has called me to do until the very end. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to just throw in the towel. I am Jesus's, and he is mine, and I will be with him till the end. Amen? This is the loyalty that you should have for Jesus. No matter the cost, no matter what it takes, I am His. I am His. I love Him supremely. And I'm loyal to Him exclusively. And third, I am going to be willing to suffer total loss for Him. He says, Jesus says, anyone that does not renounce everything that He has cannot be my disciple. And He says, take up your cross and follow me. And here again, you see this allusion to the cross. The cross is an instrument of death. It's saying, I give up my rights. I give it all up. I am all in. I will not look back. I will only look forward. I am yours. I give up my rights to everything. It is no longer me and my interest. It's you and yours. You're exchanging your ways for his ways, your control for his control. And what a glorious exchange it is. It's like, hold on, I got this. I'm terrible at history. Uh, Veracruz. You ever heard of a place called Veracruz and a guy named Cortez, 1519? I don't do well with this stuff, but I I came across a really cool illustration. 1519, Cortez landed at Veracruz to begin the conquest of Mexico. He landed with a small force of 700 men, and he purposely set fire to the 11 ships they came to the coast on. His men on the shore watched their only means of retreat sinking to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. With no means of retreat, there was only one direction to move forward into the Mexican interior to meet whatever might come their way. Pretty cool, huh? That's the kind of commitment that God wants. In marriage, divorce should never be in the vocabulary. Commitment to the end. And our commitment with Jesus, quitting, should never be in the vocabulary. You're in You've left everything behind and you're in. No matter what the cost, I've suffered the loss of all things so that I can run forward without hindrance the race that God has called me to in Christ Jesus. Amen? I'm telling you, I get excited about this. We're soldiers. We're in. We're all in, man. Suffer the loss. What ships do you need to burn? What ships do you need to burn to follow Jesus completely? Let me tell you, we talk about the sacrifice of Christians, but it's nothing compared to the supremacy of Jesus. Because you know what? Though He ask of you supreme love, He is supremely loving. He wants you to love Him with all your heart because He loves you with all of His heart, and that is the place of true satisfaction. You will never find joy in other people. Let me tell you, and your wife is not worthy of supreme love. Your kids are not worthy of your supreme love. Your dog is not worthy of your supreme love. Your profession and interests are not worthy of your supreme love. Jesus is worthy of your supreme love. And when he has your love and he's loving you, you're going to be in a place of satisfaction. It's not a sacrifice to love him supremely. It's a joy. And let me tell you, he wants your exclusive loyalty because he has committed himself to be supremely loyal to you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will always be with you. No matter what comes, He's promised you're good. Amen? Let me tell you, that's awesome news. So for you to be loyal to Him who's already said, I'm loyal to you, it's like looking at Michelle at the altar. Of course I'm going to say yes to this beautiful girl. She's committing herself to me. It's easy to commit myself to her. It's a union of loyalty. Amen? Amen? This is what we look at when we see Jesus in the face and He's inviting us in. It's not a sacrifice to be loyal to Him. It's a joy because He's the most loyal person in the world. And when you lay down your ways for His ways, that's a good exchange. And third, it ain't no sacrifice for you to suffer total loss and burn your ships because Jesus has gone to the cross to suffer total loss for you. He's already shown you He had the highest seat. He took the lowest seat for you, for you. He came for you so that you might have access to God again. He laid down His life. He went to death, not just any death, death on a cross, suffering, beaten, bruised, flesh ripped out of His skin, dying in public humiliation, taking the punishment that we deserve. He suffered total loss for you. Are you kidding me? It ain't nothing to give up anything in this life for Him. By His total loss, we are healed. Amen? It's just a small thing for us to move toward Him and leave things behind. So, I'm done. But I just want to ask you today, have you been transformed from the inside out? We've looked here in Luke chapter 14 and what it looks like, what God wants to do in your spirit. Have you been transformed transformed from the inside out? Have you truly committed to following Him? Are you in or are you out? I just want you to reevaluate and I want you to recommit today. Lord Jesus, I'm yours. To love you with supreme love, to be exclusively loyal to you, faithful until the end no matter what. And I don't care what I have to lose, God. It's yours anyway. I'm just moving toward you. I heard a story about a, a guy, a young guy, like many of us, who heard about this old man who was faithful until the very end. He was in his 80s, approaching death, and he wanted to know, how is it that this guy remained faithful to the Lord to the very end? And he went to his porch one day, and the old man was out on his porch rocking, sitting there with his dog. And he said, just, just tell me. Every, so many people have fallen away and you've been faithful. Tell me about it. He said, well, let me tell you a story. He said, I was sitting here on my porch one day, and old, old Bubba here, my dog, I don't know the dog's name, he said, went chasing after a rabbit. He saw a rabbit, went chasing after the rabbit. He said, "He was going all over the hills, and he said, before you know it, a huge pack of dogs were chasing, chasing you know, after this thing. And He said, they were all over, went through thickets and thorns. I watched them all through the woods all over. He said, they suffered a lot to chase this rabbit. He said, but slowly but surely, one by one of those other dogs started falling away, and such at the end, there was only my dog out there chasing that darn rabbit. And the young guy looked at him and said, thank you. Could you please tell me what this has to do with anything? He said, well, you you missed the point of the story. He said, you didn't ask me the right question. He said, you're supposed to ask me why the other dogs fell away, why they didn't stay on the chase. He said, well, why did the other dogs fall away and not stay on the chase? He said, they never saw the rabbit." The only one remaining in the end was the one who had truly seen the one who he's chasing. It's easy to just get caught up in a chase and play the religious game, but I'm asking you do you know Jesus? Is he your pursuit? Because if you've seen Jesus and you know him, you're going to love supremely. You're going to be exclusively loyal and you will suffer any loss because you know him and he is everything.